This is a reading from the book Rooted, Chapter 1, The Problem. General Problem. If the problem of education is to help individuals and society live in a healthy, balanced way that lead to a joyful, peaceful existence, then contemporary education and most school reform efforts are failing. This was said by Jacobs in 2003. One of the reasons for this problem relates to cultural and educational hegemony and how the powers that control education seem to be aiming at conformity to a particular image of how things should be. Quote, educational leaders have tried to transform immigrant newcomers and other outsiders into individuals who matched their idealized image of what an American should be, end quote. This was said by Tayek and Cuban in 1995. I propose a radically different approach to school reform one that recognizes the phenomenon of epigenetics and the understanding of brain development for those exposed to trauma. The latter provides a more natural model for balanced diversity and happiness, Francho, 2006, and for the former offers a scientific explanation for both why people whose DNA still reflects historical trauma are failing so often in modern schools and how all peoples can redirect DNA toward higher potentials by changing how things are done. Epigenetics and a component of it referred to as transgenerational epigenetic inheritance suggests that environmental habits from stress and diet to lifestyle choices and education systems can not only modify genetic expression in health and behaviors within one lifetime, but that such changes also can be passed on to offspring. My hypothesis is that modern influences on education have drastically changed or are significantly challenging more natural genetic expressions of humans in ways that contribute to the growing problems both in schools and in the world at large. I argue that recognizing this possibility and returning to what can be described as holistic ways of knowing that remain more or less in our genes can help reverse these problems. At the very least, it may help those whose genes themselves tend to resist most mainstream approaches to education because their epigenetic coding is closer to its original patterns. Many classrooms disregard personal authenticity, exploration of self, and almost always employ the use of hierarchical structure that tends to remove the opportunity for students to learn self-direction 
through intrinsic motivation. Learning and classroom management, the organization and maintaining of an environment conducive to learning, seldom involve self-motivated responsibility on the part of the students, as is commonplace in traditional indigenous education. The following is a sample listing of issues that schools are not addressing adequately. Loss of interest in learning school curriculum, Cridal in 2010. Violence and problems of bullying, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 2011. Inadequate curricula, Rutowski, 2001, including lack of appropriate education relating to ecological issues, Slattery, 2006. Apathy in civic and community involvement, Marvelly and Dawson, 2009. I offer a preliminary argument using theoretical research from a variety of fields. My hope is that this book will begin a dialogue that will move toward more experimental research. I believe the aforementioned problems demand a radical rethinking of educational reform. Current educational reform, as I will show, is narrowing the focus of education and moving away from a more natural, holistic way of being in the world that was practiced by our indigenous ancestors and continues to be practiced by many indigenous groups as I seek to critically examine and illustrate in this book. By holistic education, I refer to an approach that Ron Miller defines as a community connection that facilitates identity discovery and intrinsic respect for learning and life, Miller 2000. The focus of this form of education is to bring about the fullest possible development of each individual in a manner that offers them the opportunity to personally experience life and their goals completely. Forbes 2003. Holistic education broadens and deepens the educational process. It represents a planned approach that encourages personal responsibility promotes a positive attitude to learning, and develops social skills. These are essentials in the modern world in which we live. Hare, 2010. Page 7. As I will argue later, indigenous ways of knowing embrace this holistic approach, or perhaps vice versa. In this chapter, I will discuss the wider implications of our current reform strategies, the history of education in the United States, understanding from a systemic level, authoritarian structure and its place in the overall systems, the purpose of education, and of course, how this complication of issues affects students in our public schools. These issues must be addressed to inform our current educational reform strategies. 
Contemporary Education A brief overview of how contemporary education, including reform efforts, seems to be the antithesis of holistic education will help describe the problem at a more superficial level than I will describe in later chapters. Education as enforcement, the militarization and corporatization of schooling, offers a poignantly graphic general description of current trends. One of the contributors to this text writes, the school as a public good has been transformed into either a training ground for a consumer society or a pipeline for channeling disposable populations into the grim confines of the criminal justice system. Jean-Marie Durand states that youth is no longer considered the world's future, but as a threat to its present. Vis-a-vis youth, there is no longer any political discourse except for a disciplinary one." End quote. In this discourse, both the figure of the child and the cultural capital of youth are being radically configured as to undermine the rights young people have as rights-bearing citizens. Jouro, 2010, pages 6 and through 9. Indeed, today's schooling does these things with consistency, and schools and teachers are being held accountable for ensuring such oppressive education is successful. If the teachers cannot produce students who perform well on the standardized exams, then they are often released from their positions, or the school is penalized through government takeover or funding reduction. Loss of interest in curricula, violence, and bullying in schools are serious concerns that affect graduation rates. Quote, dropout rates among the population population ages 16 to 24 declined between 1972 and 2008 from 15 to 8 percent. However, wide disparities by race persist, end quote. Child Trends Data Bank, 2010. Verification of the racial disparities statistics can be found on the National Center for Education Statistics website. Dropout students do not have many employable skills. Child Trends Database, 2010. Public schools focus on academic schools without teaching these students applicable skills. Child Trends Database, 2010. Nearly half of the dropouts are currently not in the workforce. National Center for Education Statistics, 2008. It should not be surprising that many of these dropouts live in extreme poverty and demonstrate a higher risk to be more involved in crime. Child Trends Database, 2010. In 2017, National Assessment of Educational Progress test results, re test results released by the United States Department of Education stated that 67% of American public school 8th graders were not proficient in math and 65%
were not proficient in reading. NAEP 2017. Urban districts bore even lower percentages. Some districts had proficiency levels ranging between 7 to 14 percent. One of the initial purposes in establishing public education in the mid-1800s was to ensure that the three R's were being learned, reading, writing, and arithmetic. At that point in time, eighth grade was the furthest most students ever attended school. It appears that whatever the initial goals were, 160 years later, they are not being met at the most basic level. Race to the Top 2011 is a recent educational reform model intended to motivate teachers, school districts, and states to raise the level of quality education, data collection, and graduation results to a higher standard. No education reform strategy has researched the ability of teachers or administrators to truly empathize with their students. Teachers and administrators come from various walks of life. Few of them have experienced dire poverty in their lifetimes. Higher on the pyramid, we find superintendents who live completely different lives from those of the students they are responsible for. Psychology professors at University of California, Berkeley, conducted a research study suggesting a person's social class dictates their ability to empathize. More specifically, this study clarified that those from upper class experience had less empathy than those who live in the lower social classes. The study stated that those in survival mode have learned how to rely on one another to survive, whereas those in the upper social classes are financially independent and less likely to seek assistance to attend to their immediate needs. This lack of need for assistance is what hinders their ability to empathize with those in need. Krauss et al. 2010. This is important to consider in our current reform strategies. Attempts to restructure schools have aligned themselves with the hiring of extremely wealthy businessmen and women as the heads of the educational reform. Not only have they not lived the same experiences as though they are in charge of educating, but their ancestors most likely experienced a better life as well. The students who are not faring well in our schools are most often poor. Wealthy educators or administrators are most likely not prepared to relate to these students at a level which would encourage their highest learning. School Reform History Our current educational system was designed to create a specific type of worker who is also a consumer, to function in and drive today's capitalistic society. 
Public schools were originally established to assist the industrial age in its need for obedient workers who would endure long hours of repetitive, non-thinking, non-problem solving, and non-creative work. This training approach presupposed that no one in the working class was capable of individualistic creative solutions to the problems that society faced. Gatto, 2001. This same desire to use education to create obedient workers and compliant citizens ignore the value of diversity intended to oppress individuals who were not white, male, and from relatively wealthy families. As John Taylor Gatto states in his book, As Seen, Edited in Ode Magazine, mass schoolings of a compulsory nature was conceived and advocated throughout most of the 19th century. The reason given for this enormous upheaval of family life and cultural traditions was, roughly speaking, threefold, to make good people, to make good citizens, to make each person his or her personal best. Gatto, 2008, page 24. In practice, the school structure becomes more divisive and exclusive than it appears. An early forerunner of this 19th century educational purview was Dr. Alexander Inglis, professor of education at Harvard University, Cambridge. In his Principles of Secondary Education, he demonstrates conclusively that industrial age education was designed to segregate the underclasses, Inglis, 1918, ranking students according to test scores, labeled children, thereby determining their future chances of success. Unfortunately, this practice continues today. In compliance with the 2001 No Child Left Behind Act, Students are required to test in certain mandatory subjects at predetermined grade levels. Through this form of evaluation, schools are theoretically more aware of their weaknesses and therefore able to address areas in need of improvement. This governmental regulation ties school funding to school performance. If schools underperform, their funding is cut. Most often, the schools that underperform are those in lower-income communities. Reduction in funding to these schools further hurts the educational prospects of students who are already at a recognized disadvantage in their living environment and socioeconomic status. Matheson and Ross, 2004. Dr. Alexander Inglis, assistant professor of education at Harvard University in 1918, wrote six basic functions of education. The perpetual continuation of Inglis's ideas merits further consideration, especially when considered as the basis for the traditional pedagogical model or system. Inglis demonstrates in his idea of the six basic functions of modern schooling as the following. One, the adjustive, adaptive function, fixed reaction to authority. Two, the integrative function, 
students conforming to the expectations of authority figures. Three, the diagnostic and directive function. Students' records used to determine who the students are and what they will become. Four, the differentiating function. Students are trained to their diagnostic and directive function determined and determination and no further. Five, the selective function. Utilizing Darwin's theory of evolution, 1871, students with poor grades are selectively excluded from higher educational opportunities. Their peers are also very aware of these labels and act accordingly. Six, the propedeutic function. The small fraction who make it through the labeling process with the highest marks are chosen to rule the most influential and controlling organizations in the country, 1918. With the concepts discussed in Inglis's writing, the goal of public school education becomes much clearer. Standardized examinations are still used to separate the abilities of students. More importantly, these tests systematically fail to inculcate critical thinking skills and instead tend to create mass consumer mentalities more likely to follow the trends set before them. Although this may not have been consciously intended by those who implement these efforts, it has become the effect. In order to understand how we got to this place in our educational beliefs, we must understand the story behind it. Our government is an oligarchic plutocracy. This means that money decides who is in control. It is the proverbial golden rule of capitalism. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. Therefore, those with no money I'm sorry, <laughs> those with money often do not attend public school. They either have private tutors or attend private schools, which teach them a different perspective of the world, their place in it, and challenges them to find creative solutions to the world's problems. In effect, to be our leaders. Keeping the masses in their place with a coercive education ensures that power remains with the few. These few have no desire to change this system for fear of losing what they have. This prevents them from doing anything to alleviate the socioeconomic damages created by the inequalities in our educational system. I would now like to reiterate my point regarding current trends in administrative choices. Billionaires and company CEOs from a higher socioeconomic reality are now at the helm of the educational pyramid, Fertig, 2010. Our educational structure is a suppressive form of hierarchy. An administrator suppresses the teachers who suppress the students, creating obedient employees. This need for control, or power, stems from the elite of our capitalistic society. This imbalance in social societal structure 
has created strife among peoples for centuries. This is the normal structure for colonized societies. It is not the normal structure for many tribal cultures. Reagan, 2005.